Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 63 Mother's Day I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode takes a look at moms and motherhood. Happy Mother's Day! This show dives deep into DC films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. From its introduction... To its latest incarnation. My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. These films have prominently pointed to motherhood and its centrality to the human story. This tie is more tangibly touted here than in other universes with more diffuse depictions, silent suppressions, and maybe mute on or missing the maternal. This episode, we're going to celebrate the moms of these DC films. What can we learn from them? I have to disclaim that this is not an insistence. There are many kinds of moms, many ways to mother, and reasonable minds can, will, and do differ on something as personal as parenting. Parenting gets wrapped up in our identity and priorities, our self-image, our values, and insecurities. It's who we are, how we were raised, and how we raise our most precious people, making everyone familiar. Everyone's an expert. Everyone has a piece of it. And so everyone has something to say about parenting through their own personal experience, much like how everyone interacts with the most iconic and prominent superheroes. It can be hard to have the self-awareness and reflection to understand that. Being so personal and intuitive, we say with certainty that others don't quote-unquote understand how to parent or how to portray our superheroes unless it conforms to our personal experience. Well, dear friends, I come to praise mothers, not to bury them. All I offer are aspects of appreciation that I've accumulated in my experience. No attack intended. Not to present some picture of the perfect mother to place on a pedestal but to show how heroes can arise, even out of hearts that fall short of pure. That the test isn't perfect purity in isolation, but instead openness. <laughs> so this episode will intersect with our latest DC film, Shazam, and of course, as always, tie it all back to the Man of Steel. <laughs> For a roadmap of this episode, we're going to survey our films to show how these mothers provided safety, home, and affection. One, safety or survival, the essential need to keep the child alive. Two, home or family, the basic psychological needs for the child to feel nurtured and belonging. Three, affection or attachment, how the parent connects to the child and related issues. From that, foundation and connection. Next, we'll show how our DC moms prepared their children for the world, capturing the zeitgeist, amending issues, and moving them to maturity. Four, zeitgeist or society, telling the child's stories to understand and navigate everything outside the home. Five, amending or aiming or discipline, correcting the child when they're missing the mark. And finally, six, 
maturity or moving on, allowing the child to surpass the parent independently. So we have safety, home affection, zeitgeist amending, and maturity. Just say the word. (laughs) Along the way, we might pick up some insights in how we view, approach, and learn from our heroes as well. But before we get into all the fuzzy feelings about all kinds of families and moms, I do want to acknowledge the baseline biological fact of motherhood. No, it isn't every mom or all moms, but it is most moms. And to that end, consider this objective reason for ascribing moms some extra consideration. Here's Adam Cole. To make one me, you just add half of mom and half of dad. That is what I once believed. Now I know that I was wrong You gave so much to me, Mom Besides one half a set of genes You gave me nutrients, transcription factors Nearly everything that matters Plus my prenatal environment Transplacental inheritance mRNA mitochondria That back in the day once belonged to you I just want to thank you for supplying them Just like two strands of DNA are spirally entwined Your nature and your nurture inspiringly combined Scientists remind me more than half of everything I am is thanks to you. Mitochondria power the cell and they have DNA as well. Transcription factors modulate transcription. And since they're in the cytoplasm, the egg's the only one who has them. And sperm, I guess, they don't have the ambition. My sex determination that I'm a guy You gave me one X chromosome Dad gave me one Y Six XY X has over a thousand genes Y has less than 92 That's why slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you Slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you I roomed in your room for nine months and I never paid the rent your glucocorticoids helped shape my hypothalamic development. I took your blood and sucked it dry of every nutrient. It's gross but true. Sometimes I wonder where the time went. Where did it go? Sometimes I wonder where it all went. I know I'll never understand all you have done for me. I'm not that but since smart. you paid for college, I'll get my BS degree. Bachelor of Science. And I have learned it's not BS, but absolutely true. Slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you. More than half of everything I am is thanks to you. You gave me nutrients, transcription factors, nearly everything that matters. MRNA, mitochondria, that back in the day once belonged to you. Nutrients, transcription factors, everything that really matters. MRNA, mitochondria, that back in the day once belonged to you. Singing nutrients, It's not an even 50-50 spirit. You get a disproportionate share of your DNA coming from the mother. 
that really back in the day once belonged to you. Just like two strands of DNA are spirally entwined. Your nature and your nurture inspiringly combine. Scientists remind me and I find that it is true. Slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you. It's slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you. Slightly more than half of me is thanks to you. <laughs> I love this song because it's true and a fun rabbit hole of fascinating facts. Your sex will dictate how much nuclear DNA you get from each parent. It boils down to a little less than 3% more nuclear DNA from your mom if you're male. But we all receive our mitochondrial DNA, which is itself a tiny proportion of our total DNA, only from our moms. So the song is true with respect to genetic inheritance, but not necessarily expression, which tends towards fathers in mammals, including humans. Of course, the song's larger philosophical point of everything I am gets confounded by additional factors like gestation, nutrition, transcription, and of course, nurture. All of which is to say that natural birth is a complicated and astonishing thing, which was bravely returned to Krypton by the first mom of this cinematic universe, Lara Lorvan. Man of Steel is steeped in themes and imagery, symbols and stories surrounding birth and reproduction. There is so much to be said about that, but to focus on our mothers, Lara rarely gets the spotlight. So let's just quickly celebrate Superman's birth mom before moving on. The first diegetic sound in this cinematic universe is Kal-El's heartbeat, but the first words are Lara's. Hurry, she says, before giving way to the screams and cries of labor. Our universe comes into being with the drama of her childbirth. Only later do we learn of its significance and of her bravery. A co-conspirator with Jor-El to defy centuries of taboo and bring Kal-El into the world this profound way, abandoned by their society. Even as she's holding her softly fussing infant, even as a violent revolution is occurring, Lara has the strength of will and conviction to ready the launch without Jor-El. By the time he joins her, it's almost too much to bear. Fear springs to mind, doubt fills her heart as tears run down her face. He'll be an outcast, a freak. I'll kill him. But if the ship doesn't make it, he'll die out there, alone. I can't do it. I thought I could, but no, wait. Just let me look at him. We'll never get to see him walk. Never hear him say our names. In a hallmark of these earlier films, the cost is clearly counted. Lara isn't blindly following Jorel. All her raw fears and doubts, reluctance and reservations are expressed, which makes the launch of Cal all the more courageous. It is Lara with whom Zod pleads to stop. It is Lara who has the agency over the button and Lara, who presses it despite her own reasons to resist. Lara defies the hot-tempered Zod to his face, and even with the world winding down, she attends the sentencing of her husband's killer, stands through his threats and fury to see justice done for the last time in their way. And finally, with the apocalypse happening before her very eyes, she is not resigned to grief, but hope that her son will shape the world for the better. Make a better world than ours, girl. 
She only gets seconds on screen, but is filled with strength and substance, surely passed down to her son. (laughs) And that wasn't too quick, but look, this is Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. It's right there in the name, so we're going to put more weight and emphasis on that when we can. (laughs) Okay, so we began with the biological, because that's also the basis of our first factor. Safety. At a fundamental level, the foundation of parenting is to provide those essential biological necessities, food, water, sleep, and safety from, first and foremost, physical harm and expiration. As infants, we are helpless and entirely dependent on our parents to protect us. All other lofty goals, dreams, and aspirations about thriving must be subordinate to surviving at first. And across these DC films, we see mothers keeping their sons and daughters safe. As we just saw, Lara sends Cal away from an expiring world for the sake of his survival. The Kents were careful to keep Clark safe and to prepare Clark for moral hazards, the safety of his soul. And this rendition of Martha Wayne went for the gun. She strived to survive, to protect, to keep Bruce safe. Hippolyta's first instinct is to keep Diana safe by keeping her away from conflict, but later assents to equipping her to be safe in the world. Atlanta not only gets a scene to shine as a protector, but her absence is expressly intended to keep Arthur safe. I have to go back. It is the only way to save him. Even Marilyn, Billy Batson's biological mom, doesn't abandon him until she sees that he's safe in police custody. Consider how often even this central tenant takes sacrifice for these moms. It was hard for Lara to send Cal away despite all her fears, doubts, and personal pain, but she did. The same could be said of Hippolyta or Atlanta being separated from their children. Martha Wayne, terrified, gave up her life trying to keep Bruce safe. Imagine how hard it would be to raise Clark to keep his secret if you've ever tried to negotiate with a toddler or a teen. (laughs) Well, it's all just to keep them alive. Let's take a brief detour beyond the biological to acknowledge another kind of mom. Doubtless, every person alive came into this world through their biological mom. But the idea of motherhood is more than that. The person who raises you, nurtures you, and takes you in. The one who meets your basic biological needs and beyond. Who creates a home for you. That's your mom. Certainly in Shazam, Rosa becomes that for Billy. Continuing the DC tradition of honoring alternative family arrangements. Starting from the very first hero who started it all. Superman. In the modern canon, and to contemporary audiences applying conventional psychology, there are no more formative, influential, and important parents to Superman than the Kents. While their emphasis was smaller in earlier eras, they still took on the shape of a heavenly father sending his only begotten son to be raised by humble foster parents. The descent of deity, the king of kings, to be adopted by a common carpenter, maps on to the Superman raised by a Kansas farming couple more than the mosaic insistence of some. Of course, we see the escape from disaster and the basket among the bulrushes, but the adoption and elevation of an oppressed slave into a prince of Egypt appears to be the opposite of the Kents. Which is all to say that Superman's story taking Christological shapes and symbols is nothing new, and not simply the filmmaker's 
Avengers are betrayally imposing it upon the mythos. But back on track, the Kents are second to none as Clark's parents. In the absence of biological families, you find your family when you find your home. Shazam brings up the idea that family, and moms in particular, represent home. While distraught at Billy running away, Victor quotes Rosa to herself from the second time Mary had made off. To paraphrase Rosa, it's not a home until you call it home. All parents can do is give them a place full of love. Whether they choose to call it home is up to them. That place full of love turned Mary from a runaway into somebody so devoted to this family that the thought of leaving it makes her well up with tears. Home is where the family is nourished, feels accepted, is safe, and belongs. True to life, these DC films tie mothers and home together. Clark's mother, Martha, resides in the family homestead back in Smallville. Bruce relates mostly to his mother's death, and accordingly that gets embodied in the death of Wayne Manor, left derelict and decaying. Diana's journey into man's world meant leaving her mother, leaving home. For Harley, dreaming of being a mom means scenes of domestic homemaking. For Arthur, the loss of Atlanta meant rejecting his Atlantean heritage. Atlanta's murdered my mother. You don't know that for sure. Yes, I do. They killed her. Shazam does a good job of illustrating the kind of belonging and unconditional acceptance mom provides a home. Billy is introduced to a whirlwind of different faces and personalities. Eugene's distraction, Darla's eagerness, Grace's ambition, Pedro's distance, etc. It's apparent that these parents foster the freedom for their kids to be different. It means it's a bit of a madhouse, but as Rosa says, it's fun. Rosa tells Freddy to make Billy feel at home, and maybe don't say anything too weird. And Freddy responds with a fact about the Romans, <laughs> and Rosa just rolls with it. <laughs> She doesn't call Freddy out and notice that she suggested that he doesn't say anything too weird. For Billy's sake, she didn't call Freddy weird as an identity or insult. She accepts her kids as they are. So we understand that this is a warm and inviting home. Ultimately, this is what we see with all the good parents in this universe. While they may have aspirations, hopes, and dreams for their children, they love their kids exactly as they are. They all had a home and unconditional love before they had done anything before they had become heroes, before crossing the stars to make a better world, before donning the cape and shouldering the weight of the world, before fighting crime and saving Martha, before becoming a warrior and ending Ares, before coming to Atlantis to claim a crown, and before Billy even chooses this home and family, they are loved. The asymmetric timing of Rosa's acceptance before he accepts the family illustrates the issue of choice and its power. There is no evidence of abuse or neglect among the previous foster families. They're good people who want him, yet Billy is unwilling or unable to choose home. Those never become home without the image of his mom and all the nurture, support, and security that she represents, and without the choice of the child to receive that love. This profound duality is almost an offhand remark by Martha. Sweetie, how can I help you if you won't let me in? Sweetie, how can I help you if you won't let me in? It's an early and fundamental lesson imparted to Clark that reaps dividends throughout his life. 
For all the responsibility laid upon mothers as parents, remember that there is a choice on the other end as well. Partly why Atlanta is mother to both Arthur and Orm. Why, for all of Martha Wayne's love and adoration of her son, Bruce becomes a violent vigilante fixated only on her death. That choice requires an open mind and an open heart, and our heroes make that choice throughout these films. Billy Batson opens his heart to his awaiting siblings so that he can say at the end, after all, I'm home. Clark adopts humanity by way of intimacy with Lois and says, this is my world. Diana chooses the world as her home as well. So I stay, I fight, and I give for the world I know can be. Arthur's family allows him to confront the Karathin and say, I came to save my home. Aside from the explicit declaration in the voiceover, Home. Family. We see that choice again in Justice League with respect to the restoration of Wayne Manor. By the end of BVS and into JL, Bruce has set aside the broken past, but he hasn't picked up living yet. He saved Martha from death, resolving those issues. But living is more than just not dying. Bruce had not connected to the life of Martha yet and still lacked the benefits of home. That's why Martha Kent losing her home is unseen and unknown to Bruce, only by bringing Superman back, reconciling himself to life with a new superhero family of his choosing, can Bruce honor his mother's living memory, not just her death, and helping a living Martha with her home, it's what a good brother would do. Only after that choice can Bruce go about restoring Wayne Manor from decay and neglect to a place of hope and promise, light and life. No longer a fixed and static snapshot of death, but a living, breathing family. A big round table. Six chairs. Right there. But room for more. But room for more. Batman can only be a good and decent thing as a superhero in a world of superheroes. Otherwise, Batman is a concession or compromise, or else a nonsense dream mostly divorced from all substantive reality. Okay, we've covered safety and home. Let's move on to affection or attachment. With your basic biological survival ensured and a family home for nurture to occur, our third parental factor is how the mother shows affection and attaches to the child. Not simply a matter of you will survive or you are safe here, but that you are safe with me and that you are loved by me. If we had time, I'd do a detour into Harlow's primate studies, but I'll just put a link in the show notes for now. There are countless illustrations and insights that we could discuss about this. It's overwhelming. For example, we could talk about inheriting issues. It seems incumbent on parents to do some work on resolving and insulating children from their issues, otherwise unhealthy dynamics can develop. Harley dreaming of children as a path to normalcy before her fantabulous emancipation. <laughs> but let's put aside love languages, narcissism, boundaries, or toxicity. This time, we'll just discuss availability. We often emphasize the highlights, the many moments of heartfelt joy in these DC films between mother and child, Martha greeting the return of her adult son or celebrating his worldwide debut, and the start of the next stage, our other Martha leaving the cinema after an evening with her husband and son, Hippolyta and Atlanta telling tales to their young, Rosa introducing her rambunctious household of kids to Billy. However, it isn't all sunshine and smiles. These DC films give us the full spectrum, the heartbreak of letting go, getting taken away, having to leave or bury your child. While these are the highs and the lows, these DC films show a source of affection often taken for granted. 
simply being there. Much as Lara opened the film on Krypton, Martha is the first parent we meet in the grade school scene. Her first lines in this universe? I'm here! Clark, honey, it's mom! There's so much packed into this scene, but for the sake of this discussion, it's an illustration of Martha being there. So much of parenting is just showing up, and Martha is consistently there for Clark throughout his life. Simply being there shouldn't be taken for granted. These DC films are rife with the absence, abandonment, and unavailability of parents. Clark, meanwhile, can depend on Martha to take his calls in the middle of the night, to give him counsel before a big decision, or to be his co-conspirator in proposing to the love of his life. She was there, she showed up, and so Superman makes himself available to save, to help, to Congress, to mankind, or to Kahina Ziri, who wants to look him in the eye. Superman is there for his friends and foes alike, be they bully or critic, villain or family, he'll be there. Superman is so dependably there that his enemies are able to use it to plot against him, and everyone else seems to take it for granted. In the grade school scene, Martha isn't just available. She models an example of availability which Clark will follow as Superman. Of course, Martha always cares, but she's physically present to help in an emergency. Her emphasis is on helping, not judgment or blame. She didn't start with, what did you do? How did you disrupt the class? No, first and foremost, she is simply there to help. Superman doesn't interrogate humanity. Why didn't you evacuate before the flood? How did your boat get stuck? Why do you need me? And why should I help you? Explain yourself. That kind of availability means that there's no fear. If Martha was always critical and judging, Clark would be afraid to call on her, somewhat like how the citizens of Gotham have mixed feelings about depending on Batman, unsure if his wrath may turn on you, insecure and afraid of your own protector, like the women who remained in their cage. Compare this with the boldness and confidence people feel about calling Superman out publicly, insisting that he show up for hearing, criticizing him in the media, and protesting him in the streets. Do not take that for granted. If Superman were an unstable, unpredictable, critical, and partisan judge, would people feel so free to test him? The downside of such kind availability is that children will test it. But that's another episode. A brief footnote for reference. Kal-El lost Laura soon after his birth. Arthur lost Atlanta at age three. Billy lost Marilyn near age five. Bruce loses Martha at age nine. Barry loses Nora between 10 and 14. Victor loses Eleanor at age 17. Clark loses Jonathan at the age of 17 and leaves Martha around age 18. And we're almost done. Diana leaves Hippolyta after hundreds or thousands of years, but it's analogous to a mortal's early 20s or so. And finally, Superman sacrifices his access to Jor-El at age 33, soon after meeting him for the first time. All these premature parental departures affect attachment, but I want to return to the point of choice because it's easy to want to excuse or blame mothers for their monstrous children. <laughs> for example, across these DC films, every villain is conspicuously silent on mothers, with the exception of Steppenwolf and Orm, who both suffered the absence or loss of their mothers for some period. This is, of course, a generous interpretation of whatever this means. Mother, at last you call me home. <laughs> and see, even Steppenwolf knows that mothers and home go together. <laughs> 
Anyways, getting back to our other villains, Zod is the product of and fights for eugenics supported by motherless artificial birth. So no mom. Lex, Ares, Manta, and Savannah all have a litany of father-related issues but are missing any mention of mom. Enchantress and Incubus are siblings but no discussion of parents or mom. Waller is a motherless enigma. And finally, despite being so central to Batman's story, it is silence that surrounds Martha Wayne's life, conceivably signaling that they've made the villain the protagonist before another film franchise was celebrated for the same. (laughs) This commonality may lead to the rush of judgment that abuse, neglect, or absence created these villains. But these DC films reaffirm the willful choice and personal responsibility to be heroic. Not simply thrust into circumstances, but how heroes react differently to circumstances. While the villains all seem to be motherless, almost across the board, our heroes have known the absence or loss of mothers as well. Kal-El would never know Lara. Bruce lost Martha before his very eyes. And Diana can never return turn to Hippolyta. In Justice League, both Barry and Victor have lost their mothers. But he does visit his father in prison for murdering his mother. I lost your mother in that accident. I wasn't about to, I couldn't bear to lose my son. But you did. Central to Aquaman's story is the absence of Atlanta, as is the absence of Billy's biological mom, Marilyn. These losses are different in degree and kind, and it isn't my intention to say that they're the same and shouldn't hurt. Rather, to say that it is a universal experience and pain for our parenting to be imperfect or less than ideal. Everyone experiences some pain with their parents, who are themselves imperfect humans after all. Your relationship with them is a microcosm of all your future relationships, conflict resolution, proclivities, etc. The question is, what do you do with that pain? Instinctually, we adapt to save us or spare us from some of that pain. The issue is that some of those adaptations can be detrimental down the line. Maladaptive measures which hurt our future families, friends, relationships, and selves. Attachment theory is the presently prevailing psychological paradigm. Most people are securely attached, allowing them to recover quickly from negative caregiving experiences. But about one in five people are anxiously attached, where they perceive themselves as the problem and become overly attached to others, which means that they can be seen as needy, jealous, or get taken advantage of. About a quarter of people are avoidant types, where they perceive others as the problem and become distant and have difficulty developing close relationships. To quote Billy, families are for people who can't take care of themselves. The issue, Billy, is that no one can take care of all their needs themselves. People need people. And if Billy was honest with himself, he'd see that his relentless search for his mother showed his own need. A small proportion of people are fearful types, who are both anxious and avoidant, and so they suffer a sort of hedgehog dilemma, wanting desperately to be close to people while keeping them away at the same time. And this leads to inconsistent and variable behavior. Of course, this is the most cursory of overviews. Taking time to more thoroughly understand these coping mechanisms and their collateral effects will help you understand and navigate your relationships. More importantly, it's a starting point for changing your coping strategies to something healthier, particularly in the realm of a prior parenting issue. Absence, abandonment, abuse, neglect, lack, etc. The adult can adjust their attachments with reparenting or self-parenting themselves. 
The following clip describes the benefit of being able to do this. All of us were parented. For many of us, it went well. We were loved. Our views were respected. Our needs were tended to. It helps to make us the more or less same people we are now. But for others among us, things went really rather badly wrong. Perhaps there was unreliability, anger, humiliation, violence, or worse. If there was, we're liable to have been deeply marked. We may, even if it all happened quite a number of years ago now, keep noticing new ways in which the past is getting in the way of a good life in the present. Our inadequate parenting experiences undermine our ability to have sound relationships, the right sort of confidence, and to extend adequate nurture to ourselves. We would like, of course, to move on. There is something unbalanced and deeply cruel in the idea of the first 12 years determining the next 50. We cannot change the past, but it does remain open to us to correct at least some of its repercussions. We may learn to do this through a neglected and yet deeply powerful process we call re-parenting. How our parents behaved will have laid down a template in our minds about how we should respond to challenges, but we don't need to remain forever stuck with the kind of care which we imbibed in the early years. We by nature have an ability to parent ourselves. What this means is an ability to comfort ourselves at moments of difficulty, to interpret the troubles that beset us with imagination and kindness, to encourage ourselves in the face of anxiety and loss, and to reassure the more fragile, agitated parts of us by drawing upon our experience and our serene aspects. All this is what good parents naturally do for their children, but if this didn't happen to us, we can still, in adulthood, step in and do it for ourselves. One part of the mind can speak to the other. One part can act as the sane, resilient counterweight to the bruised and more immature side of the self. We can figuratively put an arm around our own shoulder. Our experience of the shortfalls of our own parents offer us an expertise that is wasted if it stays stuck at the level of just criticism. It should become the template for a far more useful project, the creation of an inner ideal parent who acts in all the ways in which the real thing should have done but didn't quite. Knowing so much about what we did not have enables us to be experts at what we need and should believe we can provide for ourselves. We already have the perfect inner parent. It's simply in many ways the opposite of the one we had. Though childhood is a one-off event in material time, in psychological time it's endlessly recurring. The eight-year-old us is still there, and we can talk to it and respond to it in a way that allows it to mature and strengthen in the way it always should have done. We can dare to make use of a much underestimated capacity, that of reparenting ourselves. If your mom did not provide safe harbor, if you struggle with long-term meaningful and fulfilling relationships, we need to give voice to that hurt inner child. Let it say what it needs to say, express, and feel, and then be addressed by a caring parental voice to say what needs to be said to that child so that it can feel heard, heal, and grow. Often called remothering or the saying of good mother messages to oneself while taking the time to be safe, cared for, relaxed, etc., Clark more or less models this on the mountaintop, where he allows his inner Jonathan to re-father himself. Clark gets away from the world to stop the influx of issues. Then in contemplative solitary, he summons the father that he lost time with. 
Instead of maladapting to the lack, Clark uses reparenting to extend the value and the meaning of their time together, to say the things that need to be said, to feel the things that need to be felt, and to get the counsel that Clark lacked and was looking for. Make no mistake, Clark is essentially counseling himself, but the exercise of encountering his father, saying that they miss each other, and gleaning wisdom is exactly is what his hurt self needs to be encouraged and heal. We can all learn from this and take note of this. I'm going to be a little glib, but Superman is actually instrumental in reparenting the villains of BVS out of their man-child nihilism and into functioning adults again. Superman acts as a sounding board to the tantrums of their inner children, rage at an unjust just world with its uncaring God, Lex about daddy's fists and abominations and the problem of evil, Bruce about how no one saved gave meaning or purpose to the death of his parents in a gutter. Childhood trauma sat festering and unspoken until the Superman provided permission to let it out. In response, Superman reparents. To Bruce, he says in words and deed, you are a hero. You can be trusted. You are a friend. You can save Martha, which Martha seals with a joke about their common capes. To Lex, Superman puts an end to Lex's unruly rebellion and says, you'll learn. He provides the necessary discipline and humility by way of defeat that Lex desperately needed to subconsciously understand that the world holds wrongdoing to account. Superman saves him, showing that he's worth saving and shouldn't engage in nihilism self-destructive suicide plots. And Superman saves the world, showing him that there's hope and a future. As the most powerful man on the planet, psychologically, Superman acts as a stand-in for God, or the parent from a Freudian perspective. Whether something as dramatic as reenacting our childhood trauma like Lex and Batman and BVS, or something as mundane as dating somebody like your problem parent, we tend to subconsciously recreate our wounds in the hopes that they'll be healed the next time around. Being aware of this allows us to avoid needless pain, or intervene at the key juncture as a parent to ourselves. To do that, we need to consider more of our factors. To tell a complete story, we need to know the zeitgeist. After the kid is kept alive, has a home and affection, they need to understand how society works. It's all well and good for the family to support and love one another to the degree their issues allow, but the outside world has its own share of slings and arrows, dangers and pitfalls. Typically, children are not sophisticated enough to fully understand everything, so parents must use principles, summaries, shorthands and stories to capture the spirit of the times, its salient essence, the zeitgeist. The parent is responsible to help the child understand their place in the world and the obstacles that they may encounter. These lessons can be explicit and consistent. For Clark, he was told about their fear and prejudice, but also his immense ability to impact change and the care that such responsibility carried. Or these lessons can clearly contradict. For Diana, she was raised being told war wasn't the way and that mankind were the victims of manipulation. But as she matured, they trained her to be an unmatched warrior and that mankind didn't deserve intervention. Or these lessons can be completely by observation or experience. In Shazam, Marilyn remarks to Billy that he looks good. Indeed, outwardly, he looks healthy, clean-cut, no obvious signs of abuse, neglect, poverty, or problems. But Shazam shows us that he still bears emotional and psychological scars that manifest themselves behaviorally, a hole in his heart that keeps him hunting instead of happy at home. Marilyn's abandonment makes him question his worth without 
without her and his value of a system that won't help him return to her. I got a mom. A little tongue-in-cheek, but in our introduction to Billy, he goes on a crazy crime spree, racking up multiple counts of false imprisonment, fictitious reports, obstruction, computer crimes, computer trespass, and impersonation of a public servant. Top that all off with a third-degree misdemeanor crime of opportunity, stealing that cheesesteak. <laughs> and that's before he gets the powers. <laughs> Now, granted, he's still a minor, so he's not going to get convicted to the fullest extent of the law. Rather, he likely ends up with probation until he ages out of Jewie's jurisdiction. But that's some serious comfort with some antisocial norm breaking. He's at really high risk of falling prey to criminal justice quickstand, where one matter compounds into another until there's no escape. The lack of a mother results in pathological restlessness and is a painful point of insecurity. When Freddy is getting beaten on the ground, Billy doesn't leap to his defense. He casts his eyes downward and turns and walks away. He comes back not to defend Freddy, but because the bully mocks Freddy for not having a mom, which is an insult to Billy's state of being, to Billy's sense of shame. That's not a healthy state of affairs. Shazam shows us how we model our parents. Buried in Billy's subconscious is the understanding that his mother Marilyn ran. People have explicitly said it to his face. He's built up fantasies and explanations to ward against that fear, that she thought he had intended to run away and rejected her, but that she wanted but could not find him. He takes on fault to preserve her image, but deep down he knows that Marilyn left him, that she ran away. When she admits it, he can barely protest, and silently resigns to the awful truth which he had known all along. Billy's mom Marilyn ran, and so her son runs too. Billy runs from families, from bullies, from fights, from Freddy. He runs from cops, school, and Savannah. Most of all, Shazam lets him run from the painful reality of himself. His pains, needs, wants, weaknesses, and wounds. Let's look at how other DC heroes model their parents. Aquaman is easy. Atlana was a rebel who rejected the ways of Atlantis, and so does author reject Atlantis. In Wonder Woman, Hippolyta is a warrior who sees mankind beyond the bedtime story. And as Diana retraces Hippolyta's steps, she she too becomes a warrior who sees mankind for what they are. When we look at the Waynes in the only living moment we have of them, they confront and fight crime. The Batman models his parents' fight and use of violence out of context. While they acted out of defense, desperation, and a necessary last resort, he uses violence prescriptively. In BVS, Martha Wayne distinguishes herself by going for that gun, even after Thomas gets shot. Thomas balled up his fist not knowing how the gunman would react, but Martha acted despite knowing that this criminal could and would shoot. We don't know much more about the Waynes, but we can say that here their wealth didn't shield them from the world with its trauma and injustices. They didn't stay in Wayne Manor, they weren't surrounded by bodyguards, they didn't step out of the theater to a waiting car and drive. Driver. The Batman refused to replicate that moment of vulnerability in his living parents, preferring to model the immutable and untouchable absolute of his parents' death. To always armor yourself, your cave, your car, your suit, and most of all, your heart and mind. Become impervious to the world. Refuse to let it move you. Instead, you force it to make sense. The risks of modeling can make parents neurotic about what they say, show, and present to their kids. They want a magic word to make it all okay. Maybe the solution is in a specific story or with the right censor or with the right act in front of the kids. And this is because our moms are human after all. I'm going to borrow from one of Jonathan's lines, but he's speaking for both parents, so it applies equally to Martha. We've been doing the best we can. 
and we've been making this up as we go along. So maybe, maybe our best isn't good enough anymore. While this is especially true for adoptive parents with the son from the stars, this seems true for most parents. Here, the mothers of the musical Dear Evan Hansen share this secret insecurity. Can we try to have an optimistic outlook? Can we buck up just enough to see the world won't fall apart? Maybe this year we decide we're not giving up before we've tried. This year we make a new start. Another stellar conversation for the scrapbook. Another stumble as I'm reaching for the right thing to say. And burn. It's a puzzle, it's a maze. I try to steer through it a million ways, but each day is another wrong turn. Does anybody, anybody, anybody maybe happen to know how the hell to do this? I don't know if you can tell, but this is me just pretending to know. So where's the map? I need a clue, cause the scary truth is The truth is that parents worry and try, but for most children, society picks up some of the slack. Kids are raised by their parents, but also their peers, teachers, mentors, and societal safeguards. As bad as Billy could be, he hasn't fully fallen off the rails because society is able to hold him in check. Remember, despite his crime spree, he was caught by the cops and handed over to social services, limiting the damage that he could do to himself or others. Even Wonder Woman finds herself checked by the world. Hippolyta's lessons were amended, undone, or refined by Steve, his peers, and the war, not to mention Antiope. That means, in most cases, a parent will be balanced out by a reality check. Even a severely underparented child like Billy doesn't turn out too bad, while an overparented child like Diana learns nuance from the world. Contrast this against society's inability to keep Bruce in line. With his wealth, Bruce was able to fund his departure from societal structures and expectations, all the way to the bottom of a pit of darkness. This is shown symbolically in the opening of BVS. Had Bruce gone along with the procession, he would have been in bounds and ended up like most people do after losing their parents. Instead, he breaks convention. The ceremony remains incomplete, with no one to stop him but the distant voice of Alfred barely staying with him. And that leads to the beautiful lie and the life of the vigilante crime fighter. Another example of societal controls failing is in the grade school scene. Any other kid without heat vision just gets dragged out of that closet, disciplined by the teacher, and thus controlled by outside forces. The stronger and older Clark grew, the more his will might differ from society. 
and the more that this would be the case, that there would be nothing stopping him but his own conscience and upbringing. And that brings us to our fifth factor, amending or correcting your kids. Now, I'm not going to take on all of discipline, which is a behemoth of a topic. Instead, let's just highlight what's in these DC films. What did these moms do when their child went astray? What did they do to get them to amend their ways? Ideally, parent helps their child understand the natural impact of their actions or beliefs, then guides them back to founding principles, and in the process, reaffirms the relationship rather than being distracted by behavior. In practice, parents can let their frustrations and issues get the better of them, as they use other ways to control. For Hippolyta, she shoots down Diana's knowledge, competence, basic facts, and even identity. That was a story, Diana. There is much you do not understand. Men are easily corrupted. You are not an Amazon like the rest of us. It's not like Hippolyta's rebuke comes out of nowhere. Obviously, this was born out of her own past and pain, her own disillusionment with men, as well as her present worries and frustration with Diana's insistence. But she punctuates it all with, because I said so. You will do nothing. As your queen, I forbid it. It's not necessarily wrong for Hippolyta to expect that to be the final word, but given the tone, timing, and context, it's practically begging Diana to defy her authority. Appealing to authority isn't inherent wrong. It's a way to offload cognitive and narrative load onto an established hierarchy story that presumably has a working track record, but it tends to be counterproductive when the discussion or debate proceeding, because I said so, is looking for an explanation, not authority. When Clark goes to Father Leone for advice, I think it shows that they know each other because Leone doesn't simply impose authority upon Clark. He didn't quote scripture and say, because God said so. He appeals to Clark because it is about Clark's subordinate coordinating himself to what he already hopes. There are many ways for parents to manipulate their children by force or funds, plenty of ways to plead or guilt or grift them into doing what the parents want. In Shazam, Marilyn uses Billy to assuage her own guilt. You landed on your feet. You look good. Billy, in turn, manipulates Dee into keeping a secret. Good sisters don't tell secrets. Freddy tries to guilt Billy. I mean, what would a good brother do? While Alfred never does this directly to Bruce on his own behalf, trying to make Bruce recognize that he's always been there for him, he does poke and prod at Bruce with the Wayne legacy at times. Oh, I hope the next generation of Waynes won't inherit an empty wine cellar. It's likely to be a next generation. Instead, Bruce comes to the realization on his own after the scales fall from his eyes. I don't deserve you, Alfred. No, sir, you don't. Bruce's late realization does suggest earlier ingratitude, but it also shows that Alfred couldn't bring himself to discipline Bruce with guilt. The boy already carried more than enough of that. Alfred concealed the cost, sacrifice, and difficulty to make it easier to love unconditionally, rather than keep an accounting of all things, playing scorekeeper or auditor. In early development, this orients towards joy over debt or efficiency, except Bruce already had a guilt complex and performance mindset to punish himself with. If it isn't authority or guilt, sometimes it's our heightened concerns and frustrations that can come out like anger. Victor raises his voice as he lists out Billy's bad behavior because he's worried and cares. But it's easy to imagine a rebellious teen taking issue with the tone, the words getting undercut by emotion. Imagine trying to reason with an unstoppable child. The Kents don't assert their authority over Clark. They don't cut off his questions or challenge his competence. They don't guilt trip. The Kents have to rely on their words, and for their words to have weight, they must be received. 
Clark has to know that they come from a place of love to be received as honest and without anger or agenda. In raising Clark, the Kents became skilled at moderating their feelings and being honest with Clark. No one can know all the downstream effects of everything they do or say. Billy's mom, Marilyn, had no recollection about the significance of the keychain compass to Billy. The wizard Shazam doesn't realize the impact of his careless words on young Thad. But it seems that coming from a place of caring, compassion, and honesty is a way to inject everything you say with grace for now and hereafter. We need that so badly that Billy had to create it for himself, but the Kents seem to do it deliberately. The Kents never pretend to be on a pedestal, but expose their humanity, hopes, and fears to Clark as he matures. In the grade school scene, Martha admits limitation. It isn't, Mama's gonna make everything better, nothing's wrong. No, she says, how can I help if you won't let me in? After the bus rescue, Jonathan expresses his uncertainty, not having all the answers, not knowing everything. Maybe he shares his fears of the government coming. Earlier, we mentioned the improvisations that Martha and Jonathan had to do and its possible deficiency admitted to a frustrated Clark on the cusp of being an independent adult. When Clark reunites with Martha, she admits her worries about him breathing as a baby and her fears of him being taken away. After Clark is bullied, Jonathan admits a part of him wanted retribution. In BVS, even Jonathan's memory tells a humbling story of when he wasn't simply a hero. And Martha tells him bluntly that some will misunderstand and hate him. Sometimes, I wonder if all this radical honesty and refusal to sugarcoat the truth came about by necessity. In some traditions, Clark's superhearing makes him a living lie detector, making it impossible for the Clarks to deceive him even if they wanted to. In other instances, Clark can't help but eavesdrop on his parents, making them transparent to him. But I think that this comes out of the harsh reality that Clark was destined to be the world's first public superhero. His ability to change the world meant that Clark needed to see the world as it was. It meant radical honesty, but not complete transparency. Clark's parents withheld things from Clark until he was ready to hear them. Likewise, Superman is honest with the world, but withholds some things until it's ready. That's another episode. Let's look at Superman's comparative honesty. If we view these films as the character's viewpoint, Clark is supremely honest with himself. His flashbacks are practically objective documentaries, uncolored by nostalgia or personal desire. He doesn't cover up his own flaws, mistakes, or insecurities. He doesn't soften reality or place a narrative over his past. These raw recollections are almost anti-narrative, with critics claiming the failure to follow prescribed forms as failure instead of recognizing the real. His visions are so starkly objective, we may be forgiven if we think them to be real for a second. No, Jonathan is not back from the dead, but imagine for a moment if Clark's Kryptonian powers included perfect recall as they sometimes do in the larger mythos. By comparison, all the other hero stories contain greater degrees of deception. Batman's flashbacks and dreams are stylized, symbolic, and subjective. BVS opens with Vision voiced over, a remix of time, space, and reality, viewpoints flipping over, time slowing, and objects jumping between events and settings. The voiceover comes from another time and perspective. The ascension of young Master Wayne is non-literal and supernatural. Bruce's crypt nightmare is similarly subjective, slowed, and supernatural. Batman lies to himself by his own admission. Wonder Woman's entire film is the bedtime story retelling of events 
steeped in far greater blood and horror in reality. Within the story, she lies to herself and considers herself different from mankind's blameworthiness. She accuses them of killing each other, killing people they can't see, killing children. She rejects Steve's claim that we are all to blame and declares her innocence. I am not to blame. But didn't Diana kill too? Can she really say that she sees any of her victims, besides as an obstacle or enemy? She condemns the killing of children, but aren't they all someone's child? As a centuries-old immortal who will live beyond them all forever, how are they not children compared to her? <laughs> Speaking about honesty, that last bit is rhetoric, don't fall for it. <laughs> But on that point of honesty, the story itself comes to understand and adopt some of her mother's technique of telling a story sanitized to a degree in order to emphasize sentiment of the pure, unvarnished truth. As a collateral effect, Diana does make herself look better, if only by the sanitation of the effects of her violence, which I won't go into detail now, but let's just say getting hit by super strength or cut down by a sword isn't at all pretty. Aquaman's flashbacks are also stylized with effects and slow-mo and seem to be Arthur's action-moving retelling of his own story. But it's honest adjacent, which fits with his blunt lack of tact elsewhere. We could probably say something about the unreliable narrator in Suicide Squad as well, twisting the story to its own ends. But of course, our most explicit expression of this self-deception is in Billy Batson's Last Memory of Mom. The film shows us both versions so that we can see the projection Billy put on top. Billy was living in a dream world, one where a sweet and upbeat mom did her best to impart something of meaning and value to him and who was torn away from him by circumstances and not choice. Note that Marilyn never asked Billy to put her on that pedestal, but he felt he needed to do it anyways. One wonders if Superman receives the monument to him in Heroes Park with the same ambivalence of Billy's keychain compass. In BVS, Superman remains something of a cipher because it's the most honest thing he knows how to do. It's honest, but it's still withholding from a world that wasn't ready yet, which didn't know the superhero yet. He's still figuring out the superhero. He took the hard road and kept it to himself. Clark did not just create an image just to make things easy. And it would have been so easy to project an image, to just give an insincere smile as the symbol of peace when everything is in chaos and going to hell, just to comfort, just so people will have hope and feel better. And certainly, there's an argument for that. But was that what Jor-El had hoped for? Are fake smiles for the sake of the feelings of others something to strive for? Is putting on a mask so others feel better really the pinnacle, the ideal? Or is that just a stopgap, a dishonest half-measure and parlor trick to manufacture hope? Wouldn't real feelings, real joy, real meaning, real altruism, real hope bring actual comfort and truly be something to strive for, a true and honest self opposed to just gritting your teeth through pain and lies. Well, it depends. Many parents can and do put on a brave front. They tell bedtime stories. They encourage being put on a pedestal. Even if they don't lie, they may still withhold for the right time. Hippolyta doesn't denigrate the stories until Diana wants to leave. Volko doesn't tell Arthur at Lana's fate until he's a teenager. And the Kents don't tell Clark about their improvisations until he was nearly an adult about to strike out on his own. 
Parents don't go to their young children with their uncertainty because they're meant to protect and order the world for their kids. Saying that they're at a loss and incompetent only makes the child insecure and unsafe. Imagine how Billy felt yearning for his mom to bring his life together. For her to admit to him that she's still in pieces, unable to order her own life, much less bring stability to his. Now, imagine the instability, insecurity, and chaos it would sow if Superman admitted his uncertainty to an uneasy world not yet acquainted to the superhero. Yet, in being honest, Superman creates the superhero. And among the mental parental traits adopted into and by the superhero is not simply being available, meaning the hero comes to you, but that superheroes are approachable. You can go to the superhero. They are safe, self-sacrificing, well-meaning, honest, and human. Kids can come up to Wonder Woman after an art heist. Fans can ask Aquaman for a selfie at a bar. People happily surround Shazam in the streets of Philly. Just as Laura had hoped, as Jor-El said, as Jonathan predicted, Superman changed the world into one where superheroes are seen as selfless rather than gods waiting to exploit their power over humanity. Superman modeled and normalized superheroes so that Billy isn't looking over his shoulder for Amanda Waller. Operating in the sunlight with tacit approval is the expected norm. This is only possible because the Kents never exploited their authority and power over Clark, so he always kept himself humbly in check, refusing to exploit his power over humanity. This is easier to illustrate in the alternative. Imagine if the Kents gave Clark a guilt complex about saving every possible life from every preventable harm. Superman would be a neurotic despot trying to put the world in a bottle and everyone into protective padded cells. If the Kents fostered a sense of entitlement that Clark owed them for raising him, Superman would resent the world for anything less than adoration for his service. If the Kents promoted material wealth any way that you could get it, Superman might not even exist, simply Clark Kent, the richest man in the world. If the Kents made it all about image and fame, Superman may be a shallow, image-conscious celebrity entertainer or star. If the Kents pushed him to impose his will upon the world, we'd be looking at President Kent, or more likely, Tyrant Superman. While these are all obviously poor outcomes, manipulating Clark growing up could appear in more subtle ways. It would be all too easy to unintentionally indoctrinate Clark into beliefs that violate privacy, override sovereignty, or recommend interfering in politics, markets, science, and religion, institutions which shape and order humanity. Many will say that Jor-El was the better parent who tells Cal that he will be an ideal to strive towards. But consider the fact that Jor-El essentially takes Cal's good character for granted. Imagine for a moment if Clark were a bitter, angry, selfish, prideful, bigoted, entitled titled narcissist told from on high that he's the ideal, that he will accomplish wonders. Jor-El's commission only works in the context of Clark's good character and humility, which came from the freedom and humility of the Kents, willing to raise someone who makes his own choices. Clark's corrections came from his own conscience, applying his upbringing, his culture, his community, his church, his experience, etc. He didn't blindly obey his parents or societal scripts, but he also didn't deny their contributions as well, because the Kents didn't try to exploit their power and took Clark's autonomy seriously. In turn, Superman takes the impact of his power upon humanity's autonomy extremely seriously. The Kents raised Clark to amend and change himself, to grow. That independence is a marker of maturity. It's said that good parents work themselves out of
out of a job, raising children to the point that they no longer need to be raised and can raise others, to make it to maturity. And this is our final factor, showing how these DC film moms prepare their children for independence, to surpass them. Many parents desire that their kids achieve what they couldn't. For example, Marilyn is still unsettled, still not good, still without a family. But Billy stops running and lands on his feet. The Waynes died fighting, but Bruce is able to finally restrain his violence against Superman. They died, he'll live. Atlana rejects the ways of Atlantis and was treated without mercy, but Arthur now rules Atlantis and brings mercy to it. Hippolyta was disillusioned by mankind and rejected them, but Diana overcomes her own disillusionment with love instead of condemnation. The Kents had hope and waited expectantly. Clark, prepared for the leap of faith, takes it and makes it. And this comes from the wisdom and ways passed on, from lessons learned, from experience or example. This is why we have stories and heroes. My mom is my hero, but what does that mean? The purpose of heroes in many cases overlaps with the parent. The parent is trying to raise you to independence, to being yourself and possibly a parent yourself. Society selects and highlights its heroes to show us the way to what is valued and honored, so that we emulate them and further society's values along. The goal is emulation and replication, a path to achievement, an actual goal to accomplish and be like. Perhaps then it's obvious the problem with the pedestal. The pedestal makes parenting or heroism about perfection, an unachievable paragon. The pedestal is literally about distance and separation, whereas the parent and the hero are meant to emphasize and illuminate the way forwards. Jorel's commission is to see that they join in the sun, not merely admire from afar. And if the only way to get there is by stumbling and falling, isn't it obvious that your parents and heroes had to stumble and fall to get there too? If their ascent was nothing but a flawless happy accident, how is that at all instructive? Why shouldn't you simply give up and set your sights lower? Deconstruction is taking seriously the admiration you hold for the hero and the parent and saying, how do I get there? How do I do it too? How do I learn from the one that I love and admire so much? This requires confronting the elemental challenges, difficulties, and decisions up close and personal. If all you do is project an image of perfection, you end up like Billy, promoting an unrealistic image of a mom that never was, never will be, and missing out on all the family and progress you could have had in the meantime. Instead of a distant fiction or fantasy dream expectation, putting away the pedestal meant gaining a real family with all its faults and flaws, but nonetheless real relationship and value. I am in awe of how much my mom has endured and grown, her strength and spirit, not because I think her perfect, but because I know she isn't. Mom was just like me, filled with flaws and failure, insecurity and issues, struggles and sin, etc., and still she did so much for her family. If I saint her, deny her humanity, I rob her of her struggle and achievement. I cut off my access to achieve the same. It gets dismissed by her holy nature instead of something hard fought for. Likewise, for our hero. It's so easy to want to push Superman's saintliness onto the perfect parents that no one has. All it takes is rule-perfect parenting, and you'll be the perfect moral paragon for the rest of your life, right? Ridiculous. Take Superman off the pedestal and ask questions you can actually learn from. How does he have hope when it's so easy to judge? How does he keep helping even when he's criticized? How does he choose when there's no easy answer? How does he relate to the government and the people? Taking these questions seriously lets you learn and apply meaningful lessons, which is what your parents and your heroes want for you. They'd rather you learn from their mistakes than insist they never made them or avoid the issues in more frothy fare. The people of Earth are different from us, it's true. But ultimately, I believe that's a good thing. 
They won't necessarily make the same mistakes we did. Not if you guide them, Cal. Deconstruction is the careful and delicate examination, consideration, and turning over of the elements to be understood. Understanding their humanity is honoring their intentions. All that gets torn down are the artificial images, the fake ideal, the false idols, and faulty premises. Clark's parents admitted that they were fallible, and dad dying ingrained his mortality into Superman's soul. We learn so much from their humanity and imperfection. In JL, Martha is too slow to seek help. She isn't totally isolated. She does reach out to Lois eventually, but could have done so sooner before losing the farm. Accordingly, Clark learns not to come after disaster, but before decision. In fact, that was instilled into him long ago. Focus on my voice. Who does Clark call with a chorus of critics in his ear? Swim towards me. Where does Clark go when he's being pulled between Batman, Congress, critics, and the world? Our other Martha is mortal in all the issues that that entails, meaning that she can die and leave. Irrespective of plans, worth, or justice, we are all susceptible to chaos. But that teaches us that life is precious, worth protecting and cherishing. Hippolyta was cynical as to mankind's worthiness and tried to hold Diana back at first. But Hippolyta showed Diana that even a hurt immortal can change and leave others free to their choices. Hippolyta changed her mind about the training, and despite her own heartbreak, she left Diana to her own choices. Likewise, Diana ultimately changes her mind about the issue of deserving, and while it breaks her heart, she leaves humanity to its choices as well. Harley shows that sometimes people become moms out of their own needs and societal scripts, but I hope and I suspect that we'll see some growth from Harley soon. Atlanta shows us that moms aren't omnipotent and free to make the world as they want it. Every mom has had to make impossible choices between painful options. Sometimes that means things that hurt your child hoping to spare them another fate. And Marilyn makes true the saying, if you can't be a good example, at least be an ominous warning. Rather than a show of virtue in spite of her issues, she serves as a warning for those who don't move past them, who don't aim for the ascent of the hero up the mountain, acquiring wisdom, etc. They hurt themselves and others. Billy is lying when he says he just wanted to let Marilyn know that he was good. That's what she wanted, to be told that her decision was right and that he landed on his feet. What Billy wants is evident in what he says first. I found my way home. It's me. I'm your son. He goes in for the hug, but Marilyn blocks him. She doesn't want to be his mom, isn't going to provide a home, and isn't even prepared to let him into his life, making introductions to others or even just exchanging contact information. Marilyn remains closed off as a result of her past pain, a cycle of abandonment. Her father abandoned her, Billy's father abandoned her, and so she abandons Billy who in turn abandons all of his previous foster families 23 times across six different counties. Marilyn may have put motherhood on a pedestal, imagining that she had to be free of issues and full of support to begin being a mom. Would it ever be a good time? Marilyn is closed off to that possibility and growth, missing out on a son that could and would love her like Billy. Even if she wasn't ready, she could work towards being a mom. Billy put Marilyn on a pedestal, and in pursuit of that myth, missed out on a real family, his own family. After a real encounter, he could remove her from that pedestal, gain wisdom, gain understanding, and no longer be naive, and enjoy his foster family fully. If we put our superheroes on a pedestal, no story is good enough, and you miss out on what you have. But if you allow them to be fallible, they can fail us, and that means that we have to have grace. Shazam isn't a happy ending if Billy doesn't let go of mom. 
If he remains bitter at his unmet expectations, the failure to meet his image, then he poisons himself against hope, love, and openness. He'll close off his heart to protect himself, or he'll place those same expectations on new people who are themselves fallible humans who fail, let him down, and begin the cycle anew. Forgiving mom meant understanding and reframing. Another way to see it is to see the reality of where they are. Understand. Then find a way to bring that reality to you. Put yourself in their shoes. See how you've been there before or how you are the same. Reframe. Understanding that Marilyn was not a good mom and reframing her as a hurt person who was as lost as he was, being able to identify with that allows him to leave without resentment, bitterness, or feeling owed. Billy giving up the keychain compass was letting go of the imaginary ideal that it represented, but also exhibiting compassionate insight into where she was as well. I swore I'd never be like them But I was just a kid back then The older I get, the more that I see My parents aren't heroes, they're just like me And loving is hard, it don't always work You just try your best not to get hurt I used to be mad, but now I know Sometimes it's better to let someone go It just hadn't hit me yet The older I get And so we return to where we started, like a hero's journey. We started off with biology. We'll wrap it up with biology or specifically reproduction. In the end, it's all about reproduction. Whether genes, a person, or an ideal, parenting is about passing it on to be used and infused into the next generation and so on. What good is the parent on the pedestal if you don't know it, understand it, and it's impossible to reproduce? What good is the hero on the pedestal if it can only be achieved in fiction, in a dream world, impossible to copy? We want to join our heroes in the sun, not sit back and admire how brightly they shine. We want to accomplish wonders, not simply marvel and wonder at the irreproducible. We want to know, understand, and appreciate our moms, not as perfect paragons or unachievable abstractions, but to do them the honor of reproducing, improving, and surpassing on their best work. It's great if our moms are warm, sensitive, and supportive, but don't squander it by taking it for granted. Don't stay stumped by their issues either. Learn what you can to put more light into the world. We look to our heroes for their virtues and values. Well, where do you think those came from? If we aspire to be heroes, then start there. They gained it from their mothers, and we can too. We can be protectors and guardians. Superman learned to protect from his protective parents. We can be self-sacrificing and put others first, like these DC moms do for their kids. We can be accepting and make people feel at home, like they belong, like these DC moms did before they were heroes. We can be there for people. We can be faithful and help them overcome parenting deficits, finding family in unexpected places, adoption, fostering, mentors, and even rivals can reparent. We can be wise to the ways of the world, model what we see, and shape society to help raise us all. 
We can be honest, change, and grow to use our power and potential benevolently to not exploit our authority. We can be heroes, seeing what is good in our mothers, our models, reproducing it, improving it, and surpassing it to shine brightly in the sun someday. Say today, Happy Mother's Day. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to show your love to all the moms in your life. Maybe you don't have a magic word that spells out all the powers that you possess, but this Mother's Day, take the time to spell out all your mom has done for you. (laughs) Give her a call. Just say the word. You're the answer, son. Hello. Mom? Clark! What is it? What's wrong? No, nothing. I just, uh... Hi. Hi. M is for the million things she gave me means only that she's growing old. T is for the tears were shed to save me. H is for her heart of purest gold. E is for her eyes with love light shine. R means right and right she'll always be. Put them all together They spell mother A word that means the world to me For the mercy she possesses Oh, means that I owe her all I own She is for her tender, sweet caresses H is for her hands that made a home E means everything she's done to help me R means real and regular you see put them all together they spell mother a word that means the world to me i love you mom